And let's bow before the Lord and ask for his guidance today. Father, we come before you today because Jesus Christ made the way available for us. We want to thank you, Lord, that you are the great and awesome God who sits enthroned above the universe and rules and reigns in the affairs of mankind. That you are the one who is sovereign over all. And you are the Almighty. There's nothing that happens in this world that you are not aware of. There's nothing that happens in this world that you do not give permission to. We don't always understand, Father, but we're thankful for who you are. Thank you, Lord, that you are with us. Your presence pervades our time here. Your Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and where we are, you are. For that we are grateful. We thank you that you hear and answer prayer. That you are listening to us even now. That you have heard the songs that we have lifted up. You've heard the heart cry. As each of us have sung these songs... Lord, you know what was going on in every one of our hearts. What situations we were thinking about as we were praying and singing about waiting on you, Lord. You know what's going on. And you care. Thank you for that. Lord, thank you for your word that instructs us about who you are, and instructs us about how you would have us to live. It teaches us what you've done for us in providing for our salvation and our forgiveness. It guides us in the path of life. And we're thankful for your Holy Spirit that teaches us this word and applies it to our individual lives. And this day we ask that you would do this work in our midst and accomplish your plan and purpose. And may your name be glorified. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, our expedition has taken us through the first four books of the Bible. Starting with Genesis. The beginnings of all things. We see those four key events and the four key individuals. And as we look at that first 11 chapters, we see that God's focus there is on the entire human race. He's responsible for creating all that we know and understand and all that we are. We fall into sin and disobedience, and therefore sin has corrupted all of His creation. God brought judgment through the flood and 
God spread out the nations by confusing the languages. And then we follow from chapter 12 on, we see God's focus now zeroes in on the chosen race through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Jacob's 12 sons. And he particularly used Joseph to spare the nation from famine. And so at the end of Genesis, we see Joseph has risen to authority in, in uh, Egypt, second in command only to Pharaoh. And it's through his wisdom that God gave him that he was able to bring his father and the 70 of the family down to Egypt and to spare their lives through the famine. And then we come to the book of Exodus. And we pick up in that spot where there are 70 within the family. But over 430 years, that family grew from 70 to over 2 million people. And the Pharaoh at that time saw how big this nation was becoming and was afraid they would take over. So he oppressed them and put them into slavery. And they cried out to Yahweh, their God. And God raised up Moses as the deliverer to deliver them from bondage. And he sent the ten prayer plagues to Egypt to, to soften the heart of Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh would let his people go. And then Moses led them out from Egypt through the Red Sea to the foot of, the, of Mount Sinai. Where we see the revelation to Israel where God took Moses up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights and he gave him the Ten Commandments and the instructions for the tabernacle. And then we see at the end of Exodus, they built the tabernacle, and God's glory dwelt there in the tabernacle. Then we come to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus only covers one month of time historically, because Leviticus is about the instructions, about the offerings and the feasts, about, about the, uh, the sacrifice and, and the uh, sanctification. We talked about those five offerings and how Christ fulfills those and, and how we are to function or apply those things in our own life. We see that it was God in that time teaching them how to remove sin through the blood sacrifice of the innocent animal. God transferred sins off the people onto that innocent animal and they were, the blood was shed for the remission of sins. And then it's through the, the feasts as well as the other laws that God gave them that they learned how to retain fellowship with God as his people. And then you come to the book of Numbers. Only a year and one month after the Exodus, we pick up with the book of Numbers. The, entire, the same generation that came out of Egypt is now, and they're still at the foot of, the, of Mount Sinai, and God numbers the people 20 years and older. And he organizes them, each tribe, and how they would organize around the tabernacle that was, that was to be constructed in the center of the camp. And he, he took the nation or the tribe of Levi and he separated them into certain families and they had certain responsibilities within the tabernacle. Then we see God's glory lifts off the tabernacle and begins moving toward the land of promise. And they all gathered their stuff up according to the tribes and according to their responsibility. And they began following the presence of God till they got to Kadesh. And it was there at Kadesh, at the, at the southern portion of the land of Israel, God, through Moses, sent the, the 12 uh, spies into the land for 40 days. They were to go in there 
to discover that God had already sent fear ahead of them into the, the hearts of the people there so that they would be prepared for God to come in and destroy them and give the land. They were to go in and find that the land was, was flowing with milk and honey and bring report back to the people to encourage them so they could trust God and they could go into the land. But that's not what they came back telling them. Ten of the twelve spies came back saying, there's giants in the land and the, and the cities are fortified. We're never going to be able to conquer them. We should have stayed in Egypt and began grumbling against Moses and against God. Only Jacob, only Joshua and Caleb were the only two spies that came back and said, no, the land is flowing with milk and honey. No, God has gone before us. The people are fearful of us. God can lead us into this, but they didn't listen to them. They listened to the ten. And so God said, that's it. You will wander in the wilderness one year for every day the spies were in there. For 40 years they wandered around in the wilderness aimlessly until that entire generation, 20 years and older, died. And God raised up a new generation. And he reorganized them. And he took them up to the plains of Moab, which is just east of the, the Jordan River, ready to cross into the promised land. And that's where the book of Numbers ends. And then we pick up with Deuteronomy. The fifth book of the Pentateuch. Pentateuch means five books or five scrolls. Jewish tradition commonly refers to these five books as the Torah, the law, or the books of Moses. So if you hear someone talk about that, you know they're talking about the first five books of the Bible. Deuteronomy is sometimes referred to as the theology book of the Old Testament because it, is this, it summarizes the teachings of Moses. In, the, in, in all that he has taught them. In fact, the word Deuteronomy means second law or, or um, uh, repetition of the law. It wasn't necessarily a second law. It was just a repeating in a, a, to this new generation. And so all the things that Moses has taught them in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers are being re-taught, if you will, re-established in this book. It, it is the farewell speech of Moses to the people because Moses isn't getting in. Moses isn't leading them in because of his disobedience in striking the rock rather than speaking the rock as God told him, God said, you're not getting in. So this is Moses' farewell speech. It's also a legal document establishing or reestablishing covenant with this new generation. Deuteronomy was quoted by Jesus in the wilderness when Jesus was tempted by the devil. It's Deuteronomy he quoted from. In fact, no other book in the Old Testament is quoted more in the New Testament than the book of Deuteronomy except for the prophet Isaiah or the book of Psalms. This is an important document in Israel's history. In fact, some would say that a careful reading and study of its great theological themes will inevitably lead one to a fuller understanding of God's saving grace through Jesus Christ. It is the theology book, if you will, for Israel. It is from this book that the poets and the prophets gain so much of their understanding and their teaching. 
Well, in, in their book, Talk Through the Bible, Bruce Wilkinson and Kenneth Boas say this about the theme and purpose. Beware lest you forget is the key theme of the book of Deuteronomy. Beware lest you forget. Moses emphasizes the danger of forgetfulness because it leads to arrogance and disobedience. They must remember two things. When they prosper, it is God who has blessed them. And two, when they disobey, God will discipline. Deuteronomy is a call to obedience as a condition to blessing. God has always been faithful to his covenant, and he now extends it to this new generation. Deuteronomy is a covenant renewal document that uses the same format as the Near Eastern treaties in the time of Moses. And so Moses organizes this book in the same way as the other treaties of the, of the other nations at that time. It was what they understood. It was a, a treaty to, to, um, uh, to lay out who is king and who are the subjects. What is the responsibility of those under that leadership? And what will the authority do? And so that's how the book of Deuteronomy is laid out in that way. It is also, as many have pointed out, organized in three sermons. The first sermon, as you see on your chart there, is what God has done for Israel. The recounting of God's faithfulness. And so in this first couple of chapters, Moses is reminding them what God has done for them and how God has remained faithful in spite of their unfaithfulness. And then the major section, sermon number two, what God expects from Israel, the reviewing of God's law. And it's here that he talks about um, uh, reminding them of all these things, the testimonies which were the Ten Commandments, that were the moral law, the statutes, which were the ceremonial duties, the things like the sacrifices and things of that nature, and then the ordinances, which were the civil and social duties, how they were to treat one another, how they were to handle property when they got in the land, what social issues, justice issues. All of this, Moses reiterates and reviews for them in this major section. And in the sermon number three, we see God, what God will do for Israel. God's promises. If uh, this is what God's going to do, God says, I'm going to bless you. And as you obey me, those blessings will continue. But if you disobey me, there will be cursings that come. And so he had them stand on different uh, places. Uh, and he, he, he uh, talks about these, the, the blessing and the curse. And uh, when they get in the land, he reiterates it again in the book of Joshua. But he's reestablishing God's covenant with this new generation. And it's at the end of the book of Deuteronomy that we see Moses transferring leadership to Joshua. He lays his hands upon him and he transfers the leadership to Joshua. And then he goes up on Mount Nebo. And God gives him a vision gives him the, uh, a glimpse of the promised land as he's standing on the mountain. He doesn't get in, but he gets to see it. And at the age of 120, Moses died. And God buried him in a place where nobody could find. And so this is the book of Deuteronomy. It's God's repetition of the law. It's God's reestablishing a covenant with this new generation as they're about to enter into the promised land.
Well, I want to zero in now for the remainder of our time this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's in Deuteronomy 6 that we find Jesus, when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is the greatest commandment. In fact, many believe that the entire book of Deuteronomy is a commentary on that one verse. Here in Deuteronomy 6, we find critical instructions for the family. For how to, how to pass on the truth about who God is and the truth about how God wants us to live. How to pass it on to the next generation so that it continues to go on and on and on. And the main thing I want us to see is this, that spiritual parenting, and that's what we as believers are to be doing with our children, is parenting them spiritually. Spiritual parenting is discipleship. What we're doing as parents, as godly parents, is we're discipling our children up in the faith. We, our goal is uh, to... Um, to instruct them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, right? To bring them up in that way, in the way of God. That's discipleship. Our desire is that they would then take that instruction and it would take heart and root within their heart and life and they would live out their days following Christ. Walking rightly with God. That's the desire. Now, I want to say something uh, to parents who have adult children who are not walking with the Lord because we automatically think we're failures because our kids are not what they ought to be. I use the word goal and desire purposefully. A goal is something you and I can do without anyone else's uh, help. Our goal is to instruct them, to raise them up, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, to pour into them. And the Proverbs tells us that if we train up a child in the way they should go, we'll not depart from it. What that, I believe that means is that that truth that we have put in them will now relieve them. doesn't mean they're guaranteed to walk according to it. A desire, a desire is something that requires somebody else to do as well. We desire that our children will walk as God would have them to. But we can't make them do that. No matter how much instruction, no matter how much we pour into them, we can't make it happen. It's a desire that we have. And so, if our children do not walk in that way, it doesn't mean that we have failed. And we shouldn't beat ourselves up. The enemy wants to do that. Listen, there are no perfect parents. But God himself. And you see what God's children, how they operated. We all have regrets. The things that, that I want to share with you today, man, I wish I understood this better when my kids were little. I have regrets. I'm grateful 
that God was gracious through the midst of my not understanding things and not doing what I should have done in, in some things. We all have regrets. We can't live in that regret. We've got to live in where we are at this time and what God has revealed to us and how God would have us to walk in this moment forward by His grace. Spiritual parenting, we understand it's discipleship. It's what I'm, 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 are we as parents are to be doing with our children, discipling them. But I also want us to understand that discipleship is spiritual parenting. For those of us who are no longer raising children, we hear a lot about, why well, I'm supposed to be discipling somebody. What in the world does that involve? What is discipling? It is spiritual parenting. That's what it is. You are doing with somebody else that's maybe not your, your uh, biological child, you are doing what you did with your own children. You are pouring into them. You are giving them spiritual help and instruction and encouragement. You're training them up. Most of the time we say, well, I'm not qualified to do that. How many of us were qualified to be a parent? We didn't know how to parent before we had our first kid. We didn't know how to parent after we had our 10th kid. Right? It's difficult. We learn as we go. Now, there's some things that we ought to know. And, and let's, let's be fair and honest. There's some people that aren't ready to have kids because they're not grown up yet. What do they need? They need somebody to come alongside them if it's not going to be their parent, somebody else to spiritually parent them to grow them up. That's what the New Testament calls older men and women to do with younger men and women. Come alongside. Be of help and encouragement. That's why discipleship is so critical for the church. We don't need to know everything. But if we've been walking with Jesus, if we learn some things, we have something to impart to someone else. We can walk them through the Scripture and learn together even. So we need to understand spiritual parenting is discipling our children, and discipleship is nothing more than spiritual parenting. And here, in Deuteronomy 6, we have principles that help us to know how to do that. I want to say this, too. Relationship is key to parenting. Relationship is key. And there are two relationships that are highlighted here. The first is that parents need a relationship with the Lord. That doesn't mean that a parent can't raise their children without a relationship with God. People do it all the time in our world. Spiritual parenting. To be able to raise up a child to walk with Christ, to give them what they need, you've got to have a relationship with the Lord first. Israel had a relationship with Yahweh through the redemption of taking them out of Egypt and through because of the, the, the bloodshed of Passover land and then bringing them through the Red Sea and now constructing them in the ways of God. God established relationship with the nation of Israel. God establishes relationship with us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. His blood was shed on our behalf. We come through him to God, a relationship with God. Our sins are forgiven. We now have a relationship, and we are instructed through the word of God on how to walk in a relationship with God. 
We need a relationship with the Lord through Jesus Christ and His sacrifice and coming by faith and trusting in Him. And so we see three truths. He needs to be both Savior and Lord. Let me go ahead and read first nine verses of Deuteronomy 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you. This is Moses speaking. That you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. So that you and your son and grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. See, that's that desire. I want you, the next generation and generations later, to carry this on. Verse 3, O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it. And it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if we, could just, if we could get our kids to understand this, that if you just do what God has told you to do, it will go well with you. doesn't mean it will be perfect. doesn't mean that life won't be hard, but for you, it will go well. You will know that you are walking with God. That doesn't mean that other people you're in relationship with will not be a pain will not do what God... But if you walk with God, God will be with you. God will walk with you through the midst of all the difficulties. Israel faced enemy after enemy after enemy, but God went ahead of them and worked His plan and purpose. They had to trust Him. But the opposite, if you don't, if you don't do what God has called you to do, the troubles that just compound in our life. Then he says, verse 4, Hear, Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently your sons and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up and when you bind them, as a, and bind them on a, a sign as, on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God needs to be both our Savior and our Lord. He needs to be the one who is in charge. Verses 4 and 5 are what's called the Shema. Eugene Merrill says this, that these, these words uh, constitute the very heart of the Old Testament and Jewish faith. It's Israel's doctrinal confession. It's most essential form. From a covenant perspective, it's the cardinal principle of which all else is interpreted. When Jesus was asked what the most important commandment, he replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. This is the first and greatest commandment. The absence of rebuttal from his critics suggests that what Jesus said was commonly accepted. This is what all of Israel understood. He goes on to say, in light of that indisputable fact, 
Israel must love him fully and unreservedly if this theological context, I'm sorry, in this theological context, love has to do with loyalty, commitment, and obedience. That's what it means to love God, to obey him. It says, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Yahweh is our God. He is one. All the other nations had all kinds of gods. They had a sun god, and they had a, a moon god, and they had a, a god for fertility, and a god that caused the rain, and they had a god that, that did this, and a god that did that, and they had all these gods they had to appease. I was just saying, we got one god. And this one god has established covenant relationship with us. Yahweh is the one true and living God. That word, uh, that phrase, the Lord is one, could also mean the Lord alone. He alone is God. He alone is Lord. He alone is King. He alone is the authority. And so as a parent, as a follower of Christ, we have to decide who is Lord of my life. Who occupies the throne of my heart? Is it me? Am I the ultimate authority that makes the decisions about how I spend my life and, and all that, that I have access to? Or is there another? And is it the one true God? Who do I bow to? You have to decide that. Well, let me say, you will never be able to fulfill your role as a spiritual parent the way God intends unless Jesus is Lord. Because the little ones growing up in your home, they will know. They hear what you say but they watch what you do. They believe that what you do is what you really believe, not what you say. And so if what you say and what you do do not line up, they believe what you do. If Jesus isn't Lord of your life, they know it. You can pretend all you want. You can convince yourself all you want. If he's not Lord, they know it. And when they get to the place where they make their own decisions, they have already concluded that I can say one thing and do another. And that's what Christianity is. So we cannot fulfill our call as spiritual parents if Jesus isn't Lord of our lives. He needs to be both Savior and Lord. We've got to trust Him and obey Him. Secondly, he needs to be the object of our love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. As I said, some have, some have said this entire book of Deuteronomy is a commentary on this one verse. 
It's about obedience. A whole heart. Again, Eugene Merrill says, the fullness of such love is seen in its comprehensive expression. It's the whole heart. It's the whole soul. It's the full strength. The heart in the Old Testament physiology refers to the mind or the will. The center of one's intellect. It's where life flows from. That's why Solomon in uh, Proverbs 4 says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Whatever's going on in your heart is going to come out in your life. If Jesus isn't Lord in your heart, it's going to come out in your life. If you're not loving him in your whole heart, it will come out in our life. The word soul describes the person, him or herself, the essential being, especially desires and longings. And then strength is not an element of one's being, but of human activity, what one does. Thus the command to be obedient to God with fullness of being and totality of effort. This is the call. Is the object of our love. Again, not love the way the world defines it. Love the way the world defines it has a lot to do with emotion and sentimentality. And so how you feel, it's not what you do. In the Bible, love is what you do. It's obedience. And that's why there's so much confusion. And one side wants to say, well, it's all about love. And we would say it is all about love, but we define love very, very differently. Thirdly, he needs to be the object of our worship. Moses warns the people, starting in verse 10, about when you get in the land, a land that, you know, you're going to live in houses you didn't build, cities you didn't build, you're going to uh, harvest crops you didn't plant. Verse 10. It shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities you did not build, houses full of good things you did not fill, hewn cisterns you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees you did not plant. You shall eat and be satisfied, and then watch yourself, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall fear the Lord your God only, and you shall worship him, and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Otherwise the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. <laughs> wow. God Is God serious about what he says? We're going into a land that is filled with pagan idolatry. And God says to the people, when you go in there, you need to wipe them out. Why? Because you need to get rid of everything that would pull you away from exclusive worship of Yahweh. These were wicked people who had been continually promoting and, and uh, continuing to live in wickedness for generations. 
These aren't, these aren't just poor innocent people that are, that are just kind of trying to make their way and just being, being good people and God says, I'll wipe them out. No. These are people who have been cultivating idolatry against God for generations. And God says, you're going into this place. Get rid of them. And you're going to find the prosperity of this place. And when you begin to experience all that prosperity, you're going to forget who God is. And that's why God established so much of these things to be continually done over and over again as reminders to them to keep worshiping the one true and living God. Dwayne Christensen in the World Biblical Commentaries, it's all too easy to forget Yahweh who delivered us from the house of bondage to serve other gods. The gods of money, power, and prestige when we take the bounty of his gifts for granted and enjoy them at the expense of others, we are on dangerous ground. For God is a jealous God. He will not tolerate our serving another master, however legitimate our actions may be in our own eyes. Welcome to 2021 in the United States of America. We have enjoyed the bounties of God's grace on this nation. But we've done this to God. We don't need you. And folks, lest we think that's outside of the church only, we're greatly mistaken. We're greatly deceiving ourselves. Every one of us has to look in our own heart and say, is, is Jesus Lord of my life? Is He the object of my love? And is He the exclusive object of my worship? Or do I have idols in my heart that are really, really important to me? Worship means the worthship. What takes number one priority in your life and mine? What is most important? Worship must be a priority. Worship is driven by love and obedience, not guilt and obligation. Many people, out of guilt and obligation, do things for God. Go to worship. You know, serve Him in certain ways. Out of duty, out of obligation, out of guilt, out of fear of what other people might think of them. That's not worship. Worship is driven by a love and an obedience from a heart that desires to serve God. Again, love is not feeling because sometimes we don't feel like it. We do it because God is worthy of it. Because God has loved me first through His Son, Jesus. He delivered me when I didn't deserve it. 
And like the nation of Israel who wanted to keep going back, they keep saying, God, why did you take us out in the wilderness to die? We would have been better off. We were better off in Egypt. Oh, really? Better off as slaves. Sometimes we act that way to God. In a relationship with the Lord, a relationship in which He is Lord, we are underneath that, and we are loving and worshiping Him. Then we come to the fact, number two, parents need a relationship with their children. Josh McDowell said, rules without relationship leads to rebellion. If we don't have a relationship with them, we're establishing and cultivating relationship with our children as they're in our home and as they're growing up. It's only a matter of time before they rebel. Now, they, they may rebel even with a relationship. But without it, it's almost guaranteed. If not outwardly, inwardly. Relationship is so critical. I remember as a teen, the thing that kept me from doing things that in my flesh I wanted to do, that I saw everybody else doing, the pressure that I had from my peers to do, the thing most... Uh, powerfully that prevented me from going down that path was that I knew if I did, it would ruin a relationship with my parents. I didn't want to do that. As much as I wanted to do the things that I saw my friends doing, as much as I wanted to, to, to go all that way, my flesh was pulling me that way. number one thing that prevented that from happening was what would this do to my relationship with my dad, my mom? Without that relationship, who knows? Only God knows where I would have ended up. Well, in verse 7, it says, teach them diligently to your sons. And we could put in daughters there. And talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. Number one, parents need to impart knowledge to the children. You not need to teach them. And that's not just spiritual knowledge. It's knowledge. It's, it's truth. Every parent should be a homeschool parent. In that, you should be training your kids at home. That doesn't mean you have to, you can't send them to school to learn some things. But the responsibility is home as a parent. It's our responsibility to train our children. Again, there's a lot of things they can learn from other people, and, and that's, that's fine. That's the decision that you make as a parent, how your children are going to be educated with many of those things. But... But that doesn't mean that we abdicate our responsibility. Moses is an example. He says in verses 1 and 2, these commandments which God gave to me, I'm teaching them to you. If he didn't do that, they'd be lost. He had to impart that knowledge to them. And he says, and I want you to do that with your kids and grandkids and so that they will fear the Lord and they will carry this on. 
He says, teach them diligently, verse 7. Be diligent about it. Formal, informal. Not preaching at them, but explaining and modeling. That's, that's the thing that's being shown here. When you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise up, throughout life, you're modeling it. You're talking about it. You're building relationship. Anyways, they're funny. All, all the times when the good conversations happen are times when you didn't expect it as a parent. Hey, you could plan. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to orchestrate things in such a way, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to impart all this wisdom that I have to my kids. And, and they're uninterested in that moment. You could say all you want. They're not going to hear it. But it's when you're hanging out and when you're fixing something together, when you're throwing ball together, when you're doing something that they want to do, and all of a sudden they start talking and you're like, oh, wait a minute, there's an opportunity. You never can plan for it. For Israel, they, they took this whole idea of binding on the hand and on the forehead and on the arm and all that stuff, literally, and they actually, they actually wrapped a box with Scripture on their arm and put a box on the house when they walked into the house with, with Scripture. And that's, that's fine for what it is, but I think really what God was getting at is, you know, this truth needs to be part of who we are. Right? He says it needs to be on your heart, verse 6 as a parent, and then it's on your heart, and you're able to then impart it to your children. Parents, secondly, need to spend time with your children. That's, that's when these things are going to happen. Building relationship. You can't build a relationship with somebody you don't spend time with. If if we think as fathers that our primary job is to provide financially, and we believe that means working 80 hours a week to provide as much money as we can to buy them all the stuff that they want, we think that's parenting, we've missed some things. Yes, we need to provide. <laughs> but we need to spend time with them. We need to be in a relationship with them. I love what Howard Hendricks said. You, can't imp you, you can impress people from a distance, but you can only impact them up close. We're impressed with a lot of people we see from a distance, right? They can, oh, they can say things and it sounds really good and, and they do something in public and we're like, ooh, all right, yeah. But when we get to know them, we find out they're real people. You know, they put their pants on one leg at a time like everybody else. They've got problems like everybody else. And... When we, when we get close enough to see how they walk through this life, through the difficulties, through the problems, then we are impacted when we see Christ at work through the midst of tragedy. And when life is disappointing at times. Only because we spend time with them. Thirdly then, Parents need to explain redemption to them. The last part of the chapter, starting with verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, what are these testimonies and statutes 
and judgments mean? What's all this about? These, these laws, these ceremonial laws and civil laws and sacrifices. What is all that about? When they ask you that, verse 21, you shall say to your son, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. And he brought us out from there in order to bring us in to give us this land which he has sworn to our fathers. And so the Lord commanded to us to observe these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, for our survival as it is this day. And it will be righteous for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. So when our kids say to us, why do we go to go to church? We don't say, well, just because we have to. Because you have to. Because I said so, right? I mean, when they're little, they don't understand. But at some point, we want to help them understand because of what Christ has done for us. Now, if you as a parent are going to church because you have to, you don't understand that to tell them. But if you understand, you go to church to worship the one true God who gave his son on your behalf to save you from yourself because in of yourself, you are a sinner. If you don't understand that and you cannot, you don't come to church to worship him for that, then you have nothing to tell your kids when they say, why do I got to do that? If you read your Bible because it's a duty and not because you want to find out who God is and what God is to say to you about how you live your life, what are you going to tell your kids when they say, I don't want to read my Bible? Why do we do these things? It's a, because we have a relationship with God. And so when our kids say, why do we do this? We say, because God has done this for us. Because of the gospel. And one of my sons say to us, said to us one time, where's all your money? My friend's parents bought them a car. Where's your money to buy me a car? We can say, we sent it on ahead. We have an inheritance awaiting us in glory that we have invested in. We could say, well, we don't make as much money as the next person. What's that good that? We could say this. We could say that. We could bellyache about blah, blah, blah. We could bellyache about all the taxes we have to pay. All those things, right? How do you answer your kids when they ask you why you do what you do? Our children need to know what God has done for us and what God has done for them. They need to understand that foundation so that then they have something to build on in their life. And I'll tell you, and, and many of you know this because you have kids who are already grown. Well, let, me, let me speak to those who have younger children at home. Let me tell you, you're going to wake up tomorrow and they're going to be gone. I remember like it was yesterday, sitting on that stoop out there, when my oldest son Joshua turned nine years old. 
And I remember thinking, half of his time at home is, is gone. I've got to really rethink some things. Now my youngest is 18. I'm ready to graduate from high school. That was yesterday. Now here we are. It goes by so quickly. As I say, the days may seem long, but the years are very short. <laughs> and so take advantage of the opportunities. And let me just step back and say, okay, how does this apply to discipleship? Well, all these principles apply to discipleship. If we're going to invest in somebody else, not as the expert, but as one who comes alongside and says, I want to walk some of the journey with you. And if I can impart anything to you that God has been imparted to me somewhere down the line, because guess what? Everything I know, I was taught by somebody else. And that person learned it from someone. So, see, we're just passing it on. And so, I want to, I want to do these things. I want to impart knowledge. I want to spend time. I want to explain redemption. I want to do that. But I can't do that if Jesus isn't Lord. If He's not the object of my love and of my worship. So, parents, we need a relationship with the Lord. We need a relationship with others. If we're going to impart truth, if we're going to impact lives for Christ, if we're going to raise up another generation who will carry out the Gospel, who will carry on following Jesus Christ until He comes back. We need to take heed to what Deuteronomy 6 has to tell us. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank You today for Your Word, the instruction that it gives us. Thank you that you make it very clear what you call us to. <laughs> Thank you that you establish relationship with us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You did that work for us. Brought us into relationship with yourself and call us to trust you and then walk in obedience to what your word teaches. Thank you that you make it clear uh, your expectations. Thank you that you put your Holy Spirit inside of us to help us with this. And I, again, it's all about relationship, Lord. It's not about duties, obligations. It's about love and obedience. <laughs> Trust in the one who will do it in us. As we sang earlier, Yet not I, but Christ in me, through me. Thank you for that. Would you, would you take the truth that has been laid out here today, use it to bring help and encouragement to us as we strive to be spiritual parents wherever we are in this journey whether our kids are little or all grown up. 
Help us to be spiritual parents to someone else. Until the day you call us home. Just as Moses. To the day he was called home was imparting. Encouraging. Instructing. Reminding. God may we be. This as you have called us to. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, would you stand as we conclude by singing, May the mind of Christ our Savior, may this.